creativity at it, at its kind of simplest level is combining things in ways that has never been combined before, right? So uh, Apple is so incredibly creative because they incorporate different types of engineering, such as uh, CNC metalwork. I'm just looking at the example in front of me, which is a MacBook Pro. They combine that with unique software, with unique audio. I mean, even the sounds and tones of the Mac are creative, right? And so when you look at kind of the textbook definition of creativity, it's it's recombining existing things in new, novel, and unique ways. But in order to do that, you have to have knowledge of these existing things in new, in, in ways and, and comprehensive enough knowledge of them to be able to use them. Welcome to The Disruptors, the podcast about the future of all of us, where we look at the technologies, trends, and societal norms shaping our collective future. Hear the world's top minds share their insights and predictions on the convergence, direction, and ethics of exponential technologies transforming life as we know it. You can learn more and stay up to date at disruptors.fm. Have you noticed that every movie that's coming out now from Hollywood is a superhero movie? What the heck gives? We all want superpowers. We all want to be incredible. And that's something that today's guest is focused on. We've got Jonathan Levy on the program, founder, entrepreneur, and superhuman creator with the Superhuman Academy. He runs an incredible podcast focused on enhanced learning and performance among elite performers. And he also has one of the most successful courses on Udemy on how to become a super learner, which is now on Masterclass. He's been featured in the Wall Street Journal, Inc., Magazine, TEDx, and now, of course, the highlight of all of it, The Disruptors. This one's fun to have a biohacker on who is helping people become their absolute best. In today's episode, we discuss the science of memory and why we're learning all wrong, how we can fix the education system and what's effed up about it, how LSD transformed Jonathan's life for the better, why we're headed towards brain-machine interfaces and a cyborg life, what are the most valuable life hacks that Jonathan implements from his incredible guests, why Jonathan's excited about blockchain, scared about the future of AI, and worried about the downfall of American democracy, and why depression and mental health are such big issues among entrepreneurs and why we need to all talk about it more. This one was deep. We got into a lot of different topics here. Jonathan's a very well-rounded guy, and I know that you guys are going to enjoy this conversation. If you do, consider sharing it with a friend. That is the number one thing that you can do for us to support us. If you love the disruptors, if you love the work that we're doing, the guests that we're having on, the talks that we have, share this with a friend, a family member, help us get out in front of a larger group so we can build our family of disruptors into something bigger, more than a movement, something that could actually impact the world. Do that. And now without further ado, thank you. I give you Jonathan Levy. As you can probably tell, I'm pretty big on health, longevity, and human optimization. That's why I'm pumped to tell you about our special 10% off offer from Onnit, the brainchild of UFC's Joe Rogan and Aubrey Marcus for elite performers. They're running a Willy Wonka style prize giveaway where everybody gets a golden ticket. Everybody wins on every order of Alpha Brain, a super nootropic stack that they sent me. I love it with my morning coffee and it comes with the potential to win an all expenses paid grand prize round trip for two to Onnit's hardcore headquarters in Austin, Texas, $1,000 store credit, $500 cash and more. Plus again, every bottle of Alpha Brain comes with a special bonus from the Onnit team. Just visit disruptors.fm alpha to save 10% off alpha brain or anything else from their awesome store. Again, disruptors.fm slash on it if you want hardcore subs to live a high performance life. 
Are you looking to grow yourself and your bottom line in the process? Do you need help scaling, growth hacking, and marketing, or with fundraising and introductions? If you want to 10x your business and build towards a sustainable future, be that a startup or a Fortune 500 company, I love helping businesses change the world for the better. I've been a founder, built startups and seven-figure businesses, coached and advised dozens and more, and learned my passion and purpose is pushing entrepreneurs to succeed. If you're a winner, aiming big, willing to go hard, and interested in potentially working together to up-level yourself and your business, I'd love to chat. mattward.io slash coaching for more details. And now, let's get on with the episode. We choose to go to the moon in this decade and do the other things, not because they are easy, but because they are hard. Says the, says the life and hacker. Tell me, how did you, how did you become a life hacker, a uh, memory and speed learning person? What's your background? What's a quick overview? Yeah, that's a great question. So I ask myself that all the time. I actually grew up struggling to learn and having a really, really difficult time academically, socially, and otherwise it all kind of really came to a head at age 13. I went through a really, really rough time. And uh, along about that time, I decided if I was going to stick around in this world, I had to kind of change myself into someone that I enjoyed being because I really didn't enjoy being me at the time. And it took a long time. Yeah, I know you and I actually share a favorite book of all time. The first book that kind of taught me this lesson that I could read some words on a page or learn something on the internet and actually change who I am was Dale Carnegie's How to Win Friends and Influence People. And that started me on a very long journey, which I haven't finished and probably never will finish, uh, towards improving myself and becoming the kind of person that I wanted to be, which of course is a moving target. As we grow, we want to grow more. And as we achieve, we want to achieve more. Fast forward, I, I get through school with the help of prescription medication. I go to college, I build a business, I sell the business, and I get into business school which is a very condensed program. And I realized I'm not going to be able to do what I'd always done, which was lock myself in my bedroom and just catch up on all the things that everyone else had understood during the lecture. And I was very fortunate at that time to meet two experts in accelerated learning, speed reading, and memory, uh, hired them post-haste, and they taught me how to learn from the ground up again. Uh, taught me how to use my memory, taught me how to read faster, taught me how to structure my learning. And from there, I took that skill and went and learned more about how to learn. And then I felt like this whole Pandora's box had been opened. So, you know, if you spent your life not really being exactly happy with who you are, and you're given the skill of being able to learn anything that you want, what are the first things you do, right? I read a 660 page anthology of body language and fixed my body language so that I was projecting more confidence because as you most likely know, you you can change your body language and actually change your perception of self, change your own psychology. So I did that. I read a huge kind of user's manual for the human body and fixed all these like aches and pains and issues that kept me from being as physical and as athletic as I wanted to be. I learned how to use my body. I read a lot of books on dating and recently uh, got married. So I, at every single point and turn in my life, I approached these problems, including building businesses, as a learning challenge. That if I can just learn what I need to do, then I can be who I need to be, and then I can achieve what I need to achieve. I see a paradigm there, but I want to double click on something that you said earlier. You said, if I was going to stick around in this world... Did you have did you have issues with potential suicide? Yeah. Yeah, I never attempted. 
Uh, I'm an only child, and I think that was a big part of it is uh, the negative impact it would have had. But I had suicidal thoughts for quite some time, around 12, 13, 14 years old. It actually really wasn't until I discovered entrepreneurship that I realized that I could be good at something and that it might be worth sticking around and, and building upon myself and building upon my skills. So uh, I, we actually have a blog post on our blog, which details, and the title is how entrepreneurship literally saved my life. Yeah, it's one of those things you see with ultra-high performers. We all have our problems, our, our ticks. And it's interesting that it took you, it took you to entrepreneurship. And you, you built a seven-figure business. Why go, to, why go to get the MBA after that? Isn't that funny? Uh, and, and also, why go to college? I think because, first off, family expectations. This was something that was always expected of me. But I also really enjoy learning about business. And I thought that going to business school, and, and this turned out to be wrong, I thought that going to business school would teach me the things that I didn't yet know about business, which were the things that kept my last business at seven figures as opposed to eight. And I went there to learn about things like leadership, about understanding finance, realistically things that I could have learned on the internet. But uh, I think I was the only one in the class who wasn't there for the piece of paper. I was actually there because I wanted to learn these things. I knew I wouldn't sit down on my own and spend a year studying managerial accounting and corporate finance. In retrospect, I have to be honest with you, Matt, I learned more about leadership on a six-hour LSD trip than I learned in 10 months of going to the world's top MBA program, if I'm honest. But, uh, you know, I didn't know that at that time. And, uh, and I thought that, that those were the things that I was going to learn. Six-hour LSD trip. How'd that happen? Why? And then what'd you gain? Why did I do it? Yeah. Was it a party thing? Was it a I want to explore myself thing? This was very premeditated. I had interest in LSD for many, many years because a lot of the people that I look up to and admire had talked about pivotal LSD experiences. Uh, but I was scared shitless, as one should be. If you are considering doing LSD, you should be very scared. Be warned. But actually, especially if you've had mental health issues before. Yes. Yeah. If if you have had mental health issues, this is an absolute no go. Right. If there's history of schizophrenia, if there's history of psychosis in your family, just don't. Right. I had a history of depression and felt like the risks were worth it. What converted me was Sam Harris. Uh, he has a blog post slash chapter of his book slash podcast episode, which is called Drugs in the Meaning of Life. And that's what ultimately put me over the edge of taking the risk to explore alternate dimensions, if you will, or alternate sides of myself. And it maybe because I was preconditioned with everything Sam Harris said, everything went exactly as he said. I mean, he says you will experience the first few times you won't even be able to imagine how anyone could ever a negative experience that happened. You will see, you know, you'll learn X, Y, and Z about the universe. That happened. And then once the gates of hell are opened, every single trip will have a visit to, you know, the valley of infinite doom or whatever it is, he says. And that also happened. So it's like uh, he, he articulates the experience so incredibly well. And yeah, I learned a lot <laughs> about myself and about life and about the universe. Yeah, it's one of those interesting things. I think we're in a similar boat. It's something that I'm thinking about and looking into as well. Why LSD versus other psychedelics? Was that just because of the user's guide from Sam? Uh, access, for one. I had access to... Were you San Francisco or Israel at the time? Israel at the time. Access, also just the, the reputation, right? In retrospect, I would have started with uh, psilocybin because it's a lot more difficult to get higher dosages that are, I mean, you'll end up throwing up a lot if you take too much, as opposed to LSD, where the difference between too much and, and just the right amount is 
uh, half a millimeter on a piece of paper, you know, like just using the scissors wrong can be the difference between a incredible experience and the worst experience, an experience so bad words can't even imagine, right? But yeah, and and that just felt like the the right thing at the time. I think probably in retrospect, I would have done psilocybin first. So you're a life hacker. You're someone who tries to optimize themselves in a lot of ways. I imagine you kind of mirror Tim Ferriss and a lot of your approaches. Would that be right? I respect Tim's work a lot. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and I've learned an, an incredible amount from him on a business and personal level. I think I'm less systematic. Uh, I have more of a kind of I mean, you and I, when we spoke last and you were on our podcast, you talked about this kind of mixture between the hyper-organized kind of everything is completely structured and let's just flow with it and see. And I think I'm more on the both, whereas Tim is extremely structured and everything is, you know, he has 10,000 journals of every workout he's ever done since he was 16 years old. I'm not that um, meticulous, I guess is the word I would use. But uh, yeah, no, I definitely am constantly testing ways to get myself to perform better and also feel better and, and so experience you, better. You sucked at school and learning and suddenly you changed that. Tell me about becoming a super learner, what that was like. What are some of the takeaways? Yeah, absolutely. So at first I changed that with prescription meditation or medication. I wish it had been prescription meditation, but that's how I sat through high school and college is I needed to be medicated to sit still. And then I discovered, and, and I still, if I needed to sit through lectures right now for eight hours, I'd probably need medication to do so. So I'm not anti-medication in any way, shape or form. But uh, what I learned and, and the basis of this whole methodology at kind of the base of the pyramid is learning how to use your memory. Most of us, one, we have a negative connotation of memory because memory gets a really bad rap. It's like schools don't teach memorization. We want the kids to learn, but there's no learning without memory. And two, we're never taught how to use our memory. I had this realization when I was writing my most recent book, The Only Skill That Matters. And I realized we started PE in first grade and we had PE all the way to senior year of high school, at least in the US, right? That's like 12 years of every single day, one hour of physical education, teaching me how to use my body ostensibly. Now, I have like qualms with PE because I think like, why was I never taught mobility? Like, why wasn't I ever taught how to heal? Anything valuable. Right, exactly. Like, wh why did we just spend time running around a track and throwing dodgeballs at each other? When we could have used that time, like like I said, I, I studied very intensively and I continue to study like different ways to heal different malfunctions and how the different muscles are working in my body. But whatever, like that time was spent and it was devoted. The human brain is the single most complex object in the known universe and we don't even have a 20 minute introductory sesh section. Like if I were to ask you, Matt, and, and you may know this because you've been podcasting for so long, but you know, what are the, the three criteria that are gonna make something memorable to you? Most people don't know. Yeah, that would be tough. I would say uniqueness. Yeah. Mm -hmm. The amount of time that you actually focus on it. There's something around your short-term memory being in some way related to your age. So you have to keep it in there for if you're 28, 28 seconds. And then I don't know what the third one would be. Shock, shockingness. Yeah, that's the same as uniqueness, right? So you yeah. started off strong. One is, and there's more to it. Three is a simplification, right? One is novelty, right? How unique, bizarre, strange is this? Two is visual stimuli, right? We, no matter what you think about how you learn, if you're an auditory learner or whatever, you may be an auditory learner because you've been trained through years of listening to teachers or podcasts or audiobooks. You've developed that skill, but pound for pound, there's no 
contest to how effective the visual memory is. Out of every single person who's ever set a world record, won a national or world memory championship, and we're talking people who can memorize a deck of cards in under a minute, all the way down now to under 12 seconds. They all use visual techniques. It's it's a game changer. It's like the difference between an electric motor and an old diesel engine. Like The electric motor gets 100% torque instantly, right? Whereas the diesel is like, good luck, you have this little range and it's going to take you a while to spool up. So visual memory is the second one. And the third one is connection to prior knowledge. So many times what we do when we learn something new is treat it as something new. But, you know, there's nothing new under the sun. All human knowledge is connected in one way or another. And even if you learn something that is not connected to something you know, just creating these kinds of perfunctory BS connections like, oh, that sounds like, or, oh, that reminds me of, will double or triple your ability to memorize that piece of information. And in schools, we spend so much time teaching people new information. How much harder would it be to just connect that and and create these connections for students? Not only that, but one of the big problems I find with education is we have separate silos. Math doesn't talk about science, doesn't talk about history. If you, We need to combine these things because we're moving towards a world where there is no specialization. If you're specialized, you're worthless. Totally, totally. How do you think about learning and memory in terms of we, we, we kind of got, have gone through the rote memorization of let's build factory workers for these factories. We're, we're evolving beyond that now to learning and creativity. Yes. I would, th- I would think that in a lot of ways, memorization would be inversely proportional to creativity. I'm curious to hear your thoughts. Oh, I'm so glad you asked me this question. So define creativity for me. The ability to create something new that you haven't directly experienced before. That's a great definition. Uh, So new would be something that hasn't yet been done or created. How do you know what's been done or created without memory, right? I had an idea the other day for a patent, but it was in a field that I know nothing about. So it may have been an idea. I have a patent lawyer researching this right now. It may have been an idea that has been, it, it was completely out of left field for a piece of sports equipment, right? But I don't have memory of that field. So my creative idea may not be creative at all. Creativity at at its kind of simplest level is combining things in ways that has never been combined before, right? So uh, Apple is so incredibly creative because they incorporate different types of engineering, such as uh, CNC metalwork. I'm just looking at the example in front of me, which is a MacBook Pro. They combine that with unique software, with unique audio. I mean, even the sounds and tones of the Mac are creative, right? And so when you look at kind of the textbook definition of creativity, it's it's recombining existing things in new, novel, and unique ways. But in order to do that, you have to have knowledge of these existing things in new in, in ways and, and comprehensive enough knowledge of them to be able to use them. I would definitely agree. I would say memory and knowledge are a little bit different, but I, I would agree with that. I would also kind of go against Apple being creative. I think they've lost a lot of that spirit, but that's a that's neither here nor there. I agree. And and I would say memory is a component of knowledge, right? We have this whole hierarchy of of knowledge and memory is certainly not the highest component, right? The highest component is the ability to create new ideas in a subject. And there are many, many levels between that. But at the absolute base of the pyramid, you have to have memory. You have to be able to remember the things that you've been exposed to. How do you think about brain machine interfaces and what we're doing in terms of creating human cyborgs, moving towards that, moving towards increased memory, moving towards the, 
I got Google in my eyeballs type deal. So I never need to remember anything. Yeah. So in the short term, I think that still what's going to end up happening is we're going to become creative workers, right? We're already knowledge workers, but we're the next step after that. No one's very few people are doing physical labor relative to what they were in the 1800s, right? So we're already a knowledge economy, but I think the next step is we become a creativity economy because, you know, Google in your sunglasses can give you the knowledge and pretty soon AI can also do basic writing. I mean, if you've seen, uh, if you've listened to like the AI composed music, we're getting there. We're not 100% there yet, but we're getting there. So oh, we're pretty close. We had somebody who could pretty we had uh, we had one of the leaders on there and he was pretty much going Hans Zimmer. It's impressive. It's impressive. Writing and things like that, not quite there yet, right? Like language and things like that. But I think ultimately, like we're all we're heading to 100% unemployment, right? I, I don't deny that. I do think in the long term, the minute that we get a uh, interface that allows us to augment our memory in a way that actually allows me to use it. Because, you know, Elon Musk has said, and I agree, like, computers are amazing. We're already cyborgs with our computers and our cell phones. The issue is bandwidth, right? Like, I have all this information in my phone, but I can't get it to me fast enough to where you and I speaking, I can use that information in real time. If I could use all the information from all the books on my Kindle app and all the podcasts in my podcast app in real time, then it's actually augmenting. But I'm already a cyborg, right? Because I already have Google at my fingertips. So the big thing is improving that bandwidth. And I have no doubts that once we improve that bandwidth, I will be out of a job. <laughs> and, and in theory, we will hit a critical mass where you can't improve the bandwidth, human beings just can't handle it without some type of AI simplification. So for you, you were saying creativity is combining two existing novel, awesome-ish things. Yeah, or more. So is that something that AI will be able to do in your opinion? Because it is, well, let's see, here's a blender and here's a connected yada yada. Well, let's make a connected blender. Oh, that's creative. In my opinion, it's not very creative. I think the definition of creativity is tough to nail down. But how do you think about that in terms of creativity, productivity, future jobs? Well, I definitely think AI is going to be able to create and and more creatively than we are, right? Because it, I I still do believe that creativity, right? And, and again, you're right, it's, it's hard to define. But the way that you approach creativity is you think about things in different ways. For example, we teach this thing in the book, uh, where people can actually double, triple, quadruple their creativity in a matter of minutes. And all you have to do, it's the simplest thing in the world. It sounds so stupid, but research has shown that it works. Pick up the nearest object on your desk and list out as many possible uses as you can for it. Because that's what creativity is, right? You're training your brain to no longer look at this as a toothpick, but as potentially a weapon for a field mouse or potentially something to prop a book up to create a little ramp for a skateboard. Really quickly, once you get past the first five, 10 uses, you start realizing I need to add things in or subtract things. You know, how can I break this desk lamp into 50 different components? And each one of those has 20 uses. And that's what creativity is, right? It's, it's thinking of new ways of thinking about things. And eventually, I mean, the number of threads that the human brain can run is so abhorrently limited compared to the number of threads that a computer can run in terms of speed uh, and in terms of also processing power and in terms of memory. So we will get to a point where a computer is able to just generate millions of different options for any particular problem. And I mean, we don't think of that as creativity, but that is creativity. Have you thought about or had anyone on your podcast that would probably be described as 
autistic or in some way special needs, but has their brain wired in the way that they in fact have superhuman powers, can fly over a city and memorize the map, know everything they've ever eaten, can yada, yada, yada. You see this where people have their brain wiring a little bit different. What are, you, what are your thoughts on that? And the, to, yeah, just riff on that a bit. Yeah, absolutely. So I haven't had, I've tried to get a couple of these folks on my show, uh, like Daniel Tammet, Kim Peek when he was alive. It's, uh, it's very difficult to get these folks because they don't really want to speak to you. <laughs> for obvious reasons. I mean, the, these are not the most social people, flat out. And, and Daniel Tammet has said he, he really doesn't like talking to the media very much. Here's what I'll say about that, right? Most of the time at that level, I mean, being able to fly over a city and once and produce an, a painting, there are sacrifices. But the average person can get very close, right? And and I would also argue that kind of thing is a curse. I, I recently saw and I don't check this often. So it took me two years to realize someone had posted this, but there was this like nasty comment on my uh, TED talk where someone said like, you don't understand how awful it is. I can't forget. You know, he's one of these rare people who can't forget. He's like, and it's a curse. And I'm like, yeah, that is, that is a curse. Like the blessing is to be able to remember everything you want to remember. Whereas, you know, if I, if I read a book, I want to remember the top five ideas. If I go to a conference that I spent a lot of money to travel to, and I meet 150 people, I want to remember all 150 of them and potentially connect with them and remember what we talked about when we have the follow-up call. That's a blessing. Whereas I think a lot of, a lot of these uh, savant type people, it's, it really is a curse. How often do you think about money in retirement? If you're like most of us, probably not enough. That's why I'm excited to tell you guys about today's show sponsor, Rocket Dollar, the company that's revolutionizing investing through self-directed investments in IRAs and 401ks and much, much more. If you're somebody who's not really satisfied with a preset list of mutual funds, if you want to be involved in startups and real estate in a broader mix of assets and in things that you have expertise in, so you can say, hey, the market's going up or down, then check out rocketdollar.com slash disruptors. Most people haven't heard of other types of investment accounts because IRA providers, they don't let you invest outside of their set mutual fund offerings. They don't let you invest in the type of stuff that you want to. But as a startup investor, as someone who's involved in this space, or as someone who's listening to this podcast and clearly educated on where we're headed, you might want to have a little bit more of your hand in investing. These type of accounts have been historically difficult to open and operate, not to mention expensive because of all the paperwork and let's face it, financial bullshit. Rocket Dollar makes it fast, easy, and inexpensive. For $100 off your Rocket Dollar account setup fee, visit rocketdollar.com slash disruptors and enter disruptors, all caps, at checkout. That's D-I-S-R-U-P-T-O-R-S at checkout so that they know we sent you there and you can help support our show. If you're interested in investing and winning, rocketdollar.com slash disruptors for more details. And now let's get back to the episode. What's the movie with Arnold where he gets his memory erased and comes back as someone else and only to find out that he was really a, a soldier? What do you think about, in, in, in essence, what do you think about the, the future where we do have the ability to read brains in terms of brain states? They're getting closer and closer to being able to interpret individual patterns of neurons to see what people are seeing, what they're thinking. You have the whole inception, let's create dreams. What do you think about a future where we are able to self-censor our memories? So we're, we're pretty close. They actually had two identical mazes and two rats, one at, I think, Cambridge and one in the US. And they trained one mouse to run the maze. And then they transmitted the, I, I don't know exactly how they did it, but they transmitted electrical signals to the brain of the other mouse, unhooked the other mouse. 
and the mouse was able to run the maze perfectly the first time. They transmitted a memory, which blows my mind. Uh, and then by proxy, if they can do that, they can most likely transmit the lack of a memory. I think time will tell. I mean, as I said, the, the human brain is literally the most complex object in the known universe. We know so incredibly little about it. Um, and we're just starting to figure out. I mean, I, I try to keep abreast of all the memory and brain science, but there's so much coming out. Just in 2017, scientists re realized, like, why do we remember spaces so well? They were completely baffled by this. And they, you know, it should be neuroepinephrine that makes you remember new novel visual stimuli. They realized that it was dopamine, which dopamine has nothing to do with memory. And it was dumping into the CA3 region of the brain, which has nothing to do with memory. So we're just discovering all these like weird hidden little secrets that the human brain has. And I suspect that as you said, there is a bigger component to knowledge and that firsthand experience is going to be a piece of that puzzle. And I, I, I'm not sure we're going to get to a point where we can download or delete memories so easily, at least from the wetware, potentially from the add-on hardware though. Yeah, it's, it's interesting and terrifying and fascinating all at once. It so, is, and the stakes are really high as well, right? Like they, you, can, you, can, you can probably fund some studies to test out, you know, uh, prosthetic limbs for amputees. There's a lot of ways to test on humans that are ethical. The human brain, I, I also realized this in the process of writing. I was like, wait a minute, this is the only organ in the body that you can't live without and can't transplant. You can transplant hearts. You can transplant spleens. You can live without eyes. You can't transplant or, you know, if you mess up someone's brain, that's it. They're gone. So it's, it's I think it's going to be really hard as well. And I think folks like Neuralink are facing a really, really tough battle to actually be able to test these things on humans. Which is a great segue. <laughs> what, what is the future of education? We know so much and yet we don't want to screw up our kids' brains. So testing is something that most parents are like, wait a sec, you can test it, but you're going to test it with those kids. Right. Yeah. So future of education, I spend a lot of time thinking about this. One, I think we're going to break it down a lot and curriculum is going to be hyper-personalized because it would have to be. When you can have an AI for every single student, I mean, as you noted, Education is the way it is because of economies of scale. But when you no longer need the teacher, you can customize the curriculum for every single student and have a personalized teacher. So there was no reason I needed to study trigonometry. It was very clear from an early age that I am a, a poet, not a quant. Now, I, I do still think I need some basic knowledge of geometry, but I could have probably spent one year doing basic overview of advanced mathematical concepts, algebra, trigonometry, calculus, geometry. That probably would have covered me. I didn't need to spend a year and a half doing trig. And I probably didn't need to spend a year and a half doing calculus and on and on and on. So I think we're going to have certain mandatory things that as a, a, a member of a liberal democracy, we need people to be educated on things like history. It's kind of an obligation of our society to educate people enough to be competent voters. I would argue <laughs> we're not exactly doing that <laughs> very well if you look at politics in many countries. But it, in theory, it is, it is the reason why we provide a comprehensive education. But there are so many things that I didn't need to know. Chemistry, again, I could have probably done a basic seminar on chemistry. I didn't need a full year of it. And so I think that personalization is one thing. And then feedback mechanisms, right? So just because we can't tamper around with people's brains physically doesn't mean that we can't use our technology to dramatically impact the way that we load up those brains. For example, uh, a good friend of mine, Ariel Garten, has this Muse device, 
which for 150 bucks, you can buy a device that will read your brainwaves. And we're still super early days, and she'll say it herself, but we're not far away from a future where I can actually see what's happening in someone's brain as I'm educating them, where I can actually measure their pupillary, uh, what's the term? Their pupillary dilation. Dilation. Thank you. And actually sense, read micro expressions on the face and actually sense when the student gets confused on a one by one level, right? Like there are some really great teachers out there who can see the one student in the back who furrows their brow. But imagine if every single interaction with an educator, and that educator is an AI, immediately goes, wait a minute, Matt, I can see you're not completely clear on what I just said. Let me explain that to you another way. And then uses a machine learning algorithm to understand Matt doesn't respond very well to metaphors. It's better if we can show him real pictures and demonstrate, just as an example. So I want to riff off of the personalization. And I think it's incredibly powerful, but also incredibly dangerous because people, let's face it, when you're 14, 15, 16, when you're 30, when you're 60, when you're 100, you have no idea what in God's name you want. People are finding their way through life. And if we let them make those decisions too early, or if we let someone else make those decisions too early, we're cutting off potential possibilities, potential paths. Einstein might not have been Einstein if yada yada. And and this is devil's advocate, but how do we handle something like that? I worry about this too. And I especially worry about it because I see the generation that came after me and they're doing so, I mean, schools for, for all the kind of criticism that we as a society lob at schools, they're not dumb. And they they realize like kids have these mobile devices in their hands and teachers are responding to this and saying like, your homework is to do this and research this this way. I'm not going to tell you what to read in the textbook because you have Google. So go out there and research, you know, something that that you're passionate about. And I I see this happening more and more. But I think, and, and this is maybe to dabble a little bit too much into politics, but I think we as a society have to decide like what is required learning. Obviously, a person needs to be able to communicate. By the way, while we're while we're shopping for things that are required learning, I have a whole laundry list of things that I think can fill the spaces of the stuff that not everyone needs to do. For example, basic personal finance. Like why is that not in schools? It blows my mind. People skills, like why is public speaking, conversational dynamics, and body language not taught in schools? It blows my mind that we send kids out into the world and like, good luck, go do college interviews with no, how do you carry a conversation? How do you show that you're actively listening? How do you project your voice to sound confident? How do you hold your body in an interview to not look arrogant? I mean, like it blows my mind that these are not things that are taught. Basic, basic, basic. To be, cyn- to be cynical, we didn't need factory workers to have any of those skills. Fair. Totally fair. Yeah, it's it's so tough, like entering into this new world where creativity will be the only thing that matters, or almost the only thing that matters. And people's creativity, passion, grit, these are the kind of things we need to optimize towards, especially as we do start to automate away more and more jobs. Right. And I also want to follow up on, on your previous question about like, what does education look like? I think it looks bite-sized as well in the interim, right? Until the big e-education system is completely reformed, which is going to take a long time. What will happen? And I was I was speaking to a, a major university recently about this. What will happen is companies will wake up and go in, in many professions, not all. Wait a minute. The best programmers we've hired are not coming out of MIT and Caltech. They're the people who sit in their basement and study by themselves. Uh, the, you know, the best writers are not necessarily people who went to Iowa 
to study writing. They're the people who've spent years writing on their own. And so there is going to be this transition where I think more and more major employers, I mean, we do this, but we're not a major employer, more and more respected employers stop caring so much about the degree. And then that's going to be a huge boom to things like online learning, things like alternative schools like Jolt, where you can literally drop in on any class you want at any time. Uh, If you want today to learn Facebook ads, drop in on that tomorrow, there's a lecture on public speaking. And and learning becomes more bite-sized. I think there's a huge market opportunity for someone to do the certification, right? You come to me and you claim that you have spent five years podcasting and promoting and, and building. And so you want to be certified in new media. Someone needs to test that so you're not wasting time at 15 different interviews. There needs to be some kind of certification body for autodidactic learning. So you made it sound like big E education system will catch up. What about the analogies of, let's say, energy? We're going off of the grid and going more and more decentralized. Same thing thing happened with cell phones. Same thing's happening with 5G. It's not going to be big towers projecting out. It's going to be small, little, bite-sized things. Is there the possibility that big E becomes irrelevant as little E takes over everything? I kind of hope so. But at the same time, I feel like just because there's a Toyota in the market doesn't mean Rolls Royce doesn't have an incredible business. I use a lot of car analogies. But I think I think there will always be a model for people who want the absolute best done for you white glove experience. And that's really what Harvard is, right? It's like, we're going to teach you a bunch of stuff that you could learn for free on the internet. You could even learn it from us for free because we publish all our courses online, but you're actually going to learn it with white gloves from the professor himself in person, face to face and have someone correcting your work. I mean, other than that, what's the difference between taking Harvard's courses free on Coursera and paying $100,000 to go. It's meeting, it's meeting all the politicians who are going to give you the, the perks in the future. I think Harvard, I think Harvard and the, yeah, I think a lot of the big name schools are a lot more about the networks. True. That's also true. I've heard the hardest thing about Harvard is getting in. Right. Totally. Yeah, it's, uh, it's tough. What, do you, what are some of your better life hacks? This is kind of what you do. You run a superhuman academy, so to speak. You talk to the smartest people in the world. What do you do to be awesome? Yeah, that, I love that question. I love how you phrased that. So first one, I mean, obviously, I have to give a shout out to memory techniques because learning all this stuff and, and listening to podcasts and stuff like that is significantly less valuable if you don't remember the things that you're learning. That's a big one. So just having the cognitive infrastructure to create new memories, restore or maintain your memories, things like that. I found in my podcast that it really comes down to a lot of advice that people know. It's more about consistency with that advice than any game-changing new diet or exercise routine. So it comes down to exercising, ideally high-intensity exercise, seems to be better, especially for me. It keeps me out of like depressive thought patterns if I have really intense exercise for shorter periods of time. So I'm a avid CrossFit person because in an hour I get three hours worth of of workout. Uh, Nutrition, nothing revolutionary. I avoid processed foods. I try to minimize carbohydrates, particularly refined carbohydrates. Uh, I drink a ton of water. On the hacks side, the more hacks side, uh, you can see I'm wearing orange glasses. I'm really particular about my light exposure. So the reason I have the orange glasses is it's after sundown. And in order for you to see me, I need a lot of light on me. But that is signaling to my body that it is not bedtime. So all my devices have, you know, the the yellowing feature, the lights in the house dim and turn orange at night. I wear these. 
in the morning, I actually go out to the biggest window in the house and try to get a lot of light as early as possible into my eyes because there's different color light at dawn than there is, say, at sunset. And then, I mean, I've got all kinds of other like products that I love. I love my mushroom coffee. I, I've recently taken up essential oils in a really big way as just a healthier, kind of more natural alternative for there's all kinds of stuff, you know, instead of taking an Ambien, just sprinkling some lavender on my pillow and stuff like that. Yeah, chamomile tea. And of course, we got the LSD. I got one last question before we jump into the lightning round. You were in San Francisco and you moved to Israel. Why? Yeah, uh, quality of life upgrade, partly. Socially, I found it a warmer, more kind of welcoming place for me. I think I also didn't like the direction that I saw the U.S. going socially. When did you leave? Really seven and a half, eight years ago. Uh, But after I went to business school abroad, it kind of solidified that I felt more comfortable living abroad. Uh, There was definitely a, a bit of kind of pride for Israel. My dad's Israeli. And also I wanted the challenge of living in a country where I, at the time, barely spoke the language, learning a new culture, learning kind of how to make my own way. So... Makes sense. One last one. Languages. What do you speak? I speak fluent, obviously English, fluent, almost native Hebrew. My accent gives me away. I speak fluent conversational Spanish and I speak fairly broken Russian. Still a pretty impressive and very diverse list. Blockchain, Bitcoin, crypto. You said you were big on it. Talk me a little bit through your thought process, how you came into the movement, so to speak, and where you see it headed. Yeah, exactly. So uh, I had a friend, uh, a lone goal, who's like hardcore living off the blockchain, 100% doesn't own any fiat currency kind of guy. And he kept talking to me about it and talking to me about it and saying, you know, your skills could be really valuable to the movement because I create online courses. It's what I do for a living. And eventually he he convinced me that this was a really interesting thing to learn about. I take on learning projects every six months or so, and I get really, really obsessed, devour everything that I can possibly learn about a subject and then kind of get bored and move on. <laughs> and I realized that I my hobby is learning because I go through hobbies, uh, but what I enjoy is the learning component. Anyway, we decided to build a course, he, myself, and uh, Ravinder Duol, who's one of the top instructors on crypto. And so I had the opportunity to learn from two people who are experts and have been around since like 2011 and just learn everything that I possibly could in the process of producing this course with them. Uh, Read some books, devoured all their knowledge, spent hours and hours just pegging them with questions. The turning point for me, Matt, and when I realized that this was like a big deal was basic economics, right? Every government in the world, for the most part, is just creating more and more and more and more debt. And inflation is inevitable. And there is realistically no way that a country can pay a $20 trillion debt. It's it's mathematically impossible, right? Unless they were to tax everyone 100% for 50 years, then they could start to put a dent in in this debt, right? So something's got to give. And I don't know what that is, because I don't think a nation of, of the scale of the United States can just default on their debt, but something has to give. And even if it doesn't give, inflation will continue to get worse and worse. Throughout history, there has to be a store of value, right? Without that, we're lost. If, if you work today and you're not able to store your value, we're back to like caveman days. You work today, you killed this bison. That work is only good for today because the bison goes rotten tomorrow. So there has to be that store of value in a society. Gold has served that purpose through past economic crises. Gold has a lot of problems that Bitcoin has solved. 
portability, transparency, security. I mean, so many different things. So I'm not one of these people who who is proselytizing that you know every single transaction is going to be a micro transaction on the Bitcoin because I've I've dug into things like the Lightning Network and I know it's not there yet and I know that because this is this whole super democratized decentralized system of consensus like which is beautiful but it's like democracy it takes time to get changes done if if Satoshi had stuck around and been a dictator or come back came back today and was a dictator it'd be a lot easier to get things like you know BIPs pass through and he'd just say, we're going this way, we're doing SegWit, we're building Lightning Network. But it's going to take a lot of time for all this innovation to happen and for the long tail to drop off because there are thousands of cryptocurrencies now. There's a ton of noise. That noise is going to keep the mainstream consumer from getting in and using crypto in a meaningful way. I'm not talking about storing it in their, you know, in their wallet and hoping to get rich. And that noise is only being contributed to by things like Libra. So it's going to take a lot of time. But I agree with with Andreas that Bitcoin has already proven its its use case. There are billions and billions of dollars stored in Bitcoin. I mean that that's what it's there to do. I would agree. I don't know if Libra is noise though. I think it's much more a wave. I don't think that alt, and this is not this is not what I want, but this is what I believe. Cryptocurrencies will not be decentralized. There's a reason Satoshi didn't stick around. He knows any hostile government would have put a bullet in his head. It would have simplified things. So because it is, it's a threat. It's a threat to government and governments that has a sole monopoly on force. So one of one of two things will happen: something like Facebook's Libra coin will take off because they've already got something like two billion users, or governments will do it themselves because they're like, "Wait a sec, this is a way better way to build a minority report society." Right. And it'll be one of those two things because consumers aren't going to go for the. XYZ coin over the USD coin because the USD coin, they already play that game with dollars. They already trust it. So yeah, for that- But it's not either or, year. right? It's not either or. And as long as there is an option, I mean, this is kind of the first time in history where people have an option like Bitcoin, where I can store my money, walk over a border with billions of dollars in my pockets. And it's, if you're smart about it, it's untraceable. And the the thing that I most like about Bitcoin is it's also unstoppable. You really can't stop people from, you can ban it, but you can't stop it. And so as long as that's there as an option, it's kind of served that purpose. You know what I mean? It'll exist, but how often do you scroll to page two of Google? Everything goes, there's exponential laws of return in terms of the people that win. So it'll, it'll always be there, but it'll always be niche is kind of the unfortunate future that I foresee because it's so easy to co-opt. I wonder, I wonder, but this gets into a bigger discussion of like what happens with our democracy as well. Because if we get to a collective consciousness where people accept decentralization, because there's this, there's a very big hurdle with Bitcoin. And, and I, I learned this when I started trying to explain it to people like my father who go, yeah, but who controls it? And I go, nobody and everybody. And, and the old generation has a problem with that. Right. This idea of there's no governing body of well, there there kind of is with Bitcoin, but at the end of the day, like you could join that governing body. You know, I mean you can be a part of the community. And so there is no elected leader of what's gonna happen with Bitcoin. And our democracy could go the same way, right? We could go to a technocracy or tech technocracy in any case. And if people get used to that idea of we're gonna trust this system that we've all engineered and it is going to make these decisions or laws are going to be coded into something like a blockchain and there's no element of humanity in something like a Supreme Court decision, then that could change everything, right? People get used to this idea of a technology running our society. 
or it could be corporations grabbing for every piece of control as they've done over the last hundred years. I am very morally aligned with the vision you say, but people don't want to rent houses because they want someone else to be responsible. They want to have someone to blame and not have to worry about the do-it-yourself mentality. I, I, right. I would love for it to be the case. I just don't think it's going to be the case because there's so many reasons why it stacks against it. And governments, if they really want to, people can say, you, you can't make Bitcoin illegal. But you know what? You kind of can because I, I, I'm writing a piece now Actually, it's just finished it. It's about random democracy. It's getting rid of our elected system and just picking people out of a hat. I think it'll be better than what we have now in the US. <laughs> but that's a that that's a whole nother story. But in terms of in terms of I don't know that. Either way, it, it would be a lovely future to build towards, but when you have a government who can literally lock you up or put a bullet in your head and they kind of have the ability and legal right to do both, it it's tough. Because technically, I mean you could easily construe Bitcoin just as treason. It's trying to overthrow the US government because it's trying to take away the US government's monopoly on money. I think you would need major, major shifts and you would need a Rome, a Rome style collapse for it to work, which I'm not putting as an impossibility. I think there's a lot of things that could cause that with the US and with other places as well. But right. I just yeah, wonder well, if it's going to happen in our lifetime. There, there will be a, a changing of the guard, right? It, it has to happen. And the US dollar cannot continue. It just can't continue. It's not backed by anything whatsoever. But the full faith and credit of the United States economy, which means less and less to me, by the way, every every passing day. But it, you, you can't continue making, you know, withdrawals against that credit again and again and again and devaluing the currency year after year after year systematically. It, it has to end somewhere. I would agree. And I would say the same thing with wealth inequality. You can't push people further and further down and not expect an explosion. Yeah. Yeah, we'll see. We'll see where we're headed. I have one last question for you, Jonathan, before you tell people where to find you and all the good stuff. And that's yeah. if you had to leave people with one thing, a quote, a call to action, it can be anything, what would it be and why? Learning is the single most important skill that matters. If you can learn anything effectively, you can become anything. If you can become anything, you can achieve anything. My life experience has has really solidified that for me, that if I can learn I can really do anything. Be prepared for any situation. Life is, yeah, life's dynamic. When you stop learning, you start dying. Thanks for coming on today, Jonathan. My pleasure, Matt. Thanks for having me. Where can people find you and learn more? Yeah, superhumanacademy.com if people want to check out our courses or just visit superhumanacademy.com slash book. And that is the new book that is coming out September 3rd, which is called The Only Skill That Matters. And there's some solid podcasts there as well. Check them out, guys. Thanks for coming on today, Jonathan. Thanks for having me. And if you guys have enjoyed this, if you've learned something, pun intended, share this with a friend. Help us get disruptors in front of more people so we can make a bigger impact. Because the more awesome people we have doing incredible things, the better. And the better our world's going to be. Thanks. Be the change you want to see in the world. That's something I strive towards and fail towards every single day. If you enjoyed this podcast, if you think the world could benefit from conversations like this, the greatest compliment you can give us is referring to the disruptors to a friend or talking about us on social media. Please take 30 seconds to do so. It would mean the world to us. And if we're lucky, help us build towards a better world. Thanks so much for listening. Thanks so much for helping us spread the message and have a great day. If you want more of the Disruptors, you can subscribe to the podcast on iTunes or go to disruptors.fm, where you'll find tons of audio and video interview stories with leaders in the fields of genetics, cryptocurrency, longevity, AI, space, VR, and much, much more. 
You can also follow me on Twitter at MattWardIO. If you enjoyed the show, please leave a quick review on iTunes at disruptors.fm slash iTunes to help more people discover the podcast and help us make a bigger impact.